You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I didn't realize people still use flip phones until I saw that video. Hope I didn't offend anybody in the room before I even open my mouth. Hey, um, we live sometimes like we think that everybody knows what that video just said. Um, and the reality is that there are people close to us, people in our families, people in our neighborhoods who don't know that he has risen. And one of the ways they can find out is by you inviting them here come hear a message about that. So um, if you walked past these cards, um, they're not just cool pictures. It actually contains all the information you need to invite somebody to Bethel. Um, and if you don't want to use words, you can actually just hand them the card or you could go real old school and put a stamp on it and write their name on it. So uh, the church decided, we decided not to mail these out. We used to do a mailing every Easter to everybody around us. Um, But time and time again, we hear and we know the most effective way, the most powerful way to get somebody to come to church is a personal invite, um, not just something that shows up in the mail. So um, pick one of these up on your way out. September 20th, 2015, a day that will live in infamy. Or at least for the subset of you who are Cowboy fans. Let me take you back to the summer of 2015. The Cowboys had finished the previous season much better than anybody had expected. We had some good draft picks, a couple of free agent signings, the best offensive line in football, and spirits were high. Everyone was optimistic. This was going to be the year that the Cowboys finally went back to the Super Bowl. Behind the arms and legs of Tony Romo, who had suddenly discovered this ability to win when it didn't seem possible. And so after 2014, Tony was starting to actually get some of the credit that he deserved. He was mentioned as one of those elite quarterbacks. And the season started off great. They won their first game against the Giants, and the second game started off great as well. They're beating up on the dreaded Philadelphia Eagles. And in one unremarkable play, Tony Romo gets tackled and his collarbone is broken. Hurts me just to see that picture. And I'm sure Tony was having a hard time breathing there and everybody in the stadium was holding their breath um, as they realized that the hopes for the season had just been dashed. Their hopes had snapped with Tony's clavicle. Proving that true, the Cowboys went on to lose the next seven games. And they finished ultimately with four wins and 12 losses. It was an awful year for the Cowboy fans, and especially those who trusted in Tony to overcome some of the weaknesses of the team, overcome the general manager, somehow figure out a way to win. But he didn't. Now, that's just football, and even in Texas, there are things more important than football. 
You know, have you ever put your trust in someone who let you down? I think if we were to raise our hands now, every hand would go up. Someone who seemed good, who was dependable, who was a proven winner, but they failed to live up to your expectations, to do what they promised. Maybe it was a political leader, a candidate who had to resign in disgrace and scandal, or maybe they just didn't win. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach who left or retired or disappointed you in some way, or a boss who didn't keep his promises to you. You know, I had a boss who gave me my second job out of the army. He was a very successful man, worth tens of millions of dollars at the time and worth much more than that now. And he bought and sold probably over 50 companies in his life when I started to work for him. He was brilliant. He was creative. He worked hard. So as I worked hard for him, as I felt like I poured out my life for him, I learned that this man I respected, this man that I trusted, who was great at the office, was a wreck at home. He'd married very late in life, but he had no relationship with his stepsons. And then I learned that he was being unfaithful to his wife. I was sick about it. I was angry, I was disgusted, I was disillusioned. Something like that ever happened to you? Maybe closer to home. Maybe it's a parent who let you down in some way. As a parent now, I know that that happens not just every once in a while. It happens seemingly every week or every day that we let our kids down. Or maybe it's a spouse who didn't hold up their end of the bargain or who just left. It hurts. And it robs you of hope. But we know, we learned in Sunday school, that we should put our trust in God. And at some level, we certainly do. But the reality is that thousands of times a day, we trust in man and it works out. Even this morning, as I drove my car to church today, I trusted that the guys who rotated my tires on Friday put them back on the right way. They didn't put the hubcap on the right way, but the, the wheel is still attached. I trusted you. I trusted the other drivers on the road that you would stay on your side of the road and I would stay on my side of the road and we would all be okay. I trusted that Jacob Putman, the deacon on duty, would have the lights on, the air conditioners or the heaters, whichever one we needed, would be working when we got here. That Tom would turn my slides when he's supposed to. Trust in man it seems to work out. But what do you do when you trust in the man Jesus of Nazareth and he lets you down? Where do you go? When life doesn't go like you thought it would or thought it should, would trusting in the man, Jesus, be enough? You know, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the story in many ways about a group of people, the disciples and the crowds in Jerusalem, who put their trust in a man, Jesus, but that man failed them. He didn't meet their expectations. 
And as we wrestle with that, we'll explore why it's important that Jesus was the God-man. Not just a man, not just God, but the only God-man. We're pausing our series on 1 Peter as we begin Holy Week. It's the week, the last week of Lent. So for those of you who've given up something, the end is in sight. For the rest of us, we can look forward to uh, Good Friday services here at Bethel at 7 and Easter services 8, 9.30, and 11. Uh, and if you're new to Bethel, one of the things we often ask is um, come early on Easter Sunday. Um, come to that early service and make room for uh, the hundreds and hundreds of people who will come to Bethel uh, maybe for the first time on Sunday. But our theme for um, Easter and for all of Holy Week is undeserved, as we've, as we've shown you, which is based on 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. From this text, we're going to look at undeserved from three aspects. And the first one is today, undeserved sin. And it's the truth that Jesus was a real man who was also fully God, who lived a sinless life and took on our sin and the sin of all mankind. Undeserved sin with a special focus today on the incarnation. And then Good Friday, Ross will look at the undeserved death of Jesus. Even though he was without personal sin, he took the penalty for our sin and he took it to a cross outside of Jerusalem where he died a death that personally he did not deserve. An undeserved death. And then Easter Sunday, when we gather to celebrate the resurrection of the God man Jesus, we will look at the last part of the verse and our undeserved righteousness. How by God's grace and through faith in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Undeserved sin, undeserved death, and undeserved righteousness. So one verse, three sermons. And so today, I'm going to take the first 13 words, and I'm going to speak 4,000 words. On those 13. Sounds like a great trade-off, doesn't it? Actually, that's not exactly what we're going to do. Um, what, what I'd propose to do is we'll read the Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry account in Matthew 21. And then we're also going to focus on Psalm 118 that the crowd was cheering as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And then we'll look specifically at the doctrine of the Incarnation the doctrine that seeks to understand how the eternal son became a man through the virgin birth, fully God, fully man, without either his divine or human nature being diminished, changed, or intermingled. And I'll try and do that without going all boring seminary lecture on you. And we'll explore why it is it so important that Jesus was both God and man. So turn to Matthew chapter 21. Verse 1, and let me warn you that this is going to be one of those Sundays where it actually pays to have a paper Bible 
Because we're going to be going back and forth between Psalm 118 and Matthew 21, which if you have a finger and can stick it in your Bible, that works very easily. If you're pointing and clicking, sometimes that doesn't work as well. So while you're turning to Matthew 21, let me set the stage for you. The triumphal entry takes place in Jerusalem towards the very end, just the final days, the last few days of the public ministry of Jesus. He's become quite popular. People are amazed at his ability to do all these incredible things, the miracles, healings, restoring sight, feeding the 5,000, even raising people from the dead. And so Jesus, like all good Jewish boys, goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so this passage begins with him sitting across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, about a mile away, sitting on the Mount of Olives with the crowds who were following him and those heading to Jerusalem. But before they crossed over the valley and into Jerusalem, this is what happened. So beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. If anyone says anything to you, I'm sorry, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now I want to look at this scene from three viewpoints. The crowd, Jesus, and Matthew, the author of this passage. So let's look at the crowd. Obviously, they are big Jesus fans. They all have the t-shirts. They probably have their WWJD bracelets on. And not only are they cheering, but they put their cloaks down and they put the tree branches, which John identifies specifically as palm leaves. And then they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this wasn't a standard cheer like you'd hear in crowds 2,000 years ago. Like maybe today you'd hear someone yell, hook them or Gigum. Not a single whoop in this room. Can't believe that. Or maybe go Cowboys. No, this is a specific reference to Psalm 118. So let's turn there and see what this tells us about what the crowd was thinking. As you're turning there, it's not clear who wrote this psalm, although beginning in verse 5 through 9, it's an individual speaking 
And that individual appears in verses 10 through 13 to be the king. Where the speaker is surrounded by nations in verse 10 and 12. But the king cuts his enemies off. So possibly, likely it was a psalm of David. But what is known about this psalm is that it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It was used by the people of God as they gathered to celebrate the feasts, specifically Passover. So it's a thanksgiving psalm celebrating God's deliverance of the nation through providing and delivering a king. Now the quote from all the gospel writers begins in verse 25 and goes into verse 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew uses the word Hosanna, which I always thought was like another word for God. Some of you might use it that way today, but in the New Testament, it is only used in the Gospels in this account of the triumphal entry and then also when the children recognized Jesus in the temple. And regardless of what it might mean today, back then it was a transliteration of two Hebrew words. A transliteration is when you take um, words from one language into another and you just use whatever sounds like the original language. So these two words are the Hebrew words Hosea and Na. And that literally means save us now or save us please. And so when you couple that with the phrase son of David from Matthew's account, which referred to the Messiah being a descendant of King David, a rightful heir to the throne of King David, that means that what the crowd is shouting is for the king to save them. They're not worshiping God. They're not claiming that Jesus is God. They are recognizing Jesus as their king and are celebrating what they know is going to be their coming liberation from the oppression of the Romans and the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Matthew also tells us that the crowds, when asked who Jesus was, responded in verse 11 with the answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So again, a man who is a prophet a man who is both prophet and king. That's the viewpoint of the crowd who cheered him. The second viewpoint of this scene that I want us to look at is that of Jesus. And scripture doesn't tell us exactly what he's thinking. But he, as he hears them chanting parts of Psalm 118, this is what I know. Jesus knew scripture. And I'm sure he couldn't help but be more struck by some of the other parts of Psalm 118. Maybe it was verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I wonder if he thought of those words and pictured what it would be like to be beaten almost to death and then hang on a cross until dead. What can man do? He can do a lot. Or verse 7, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. 
Did he think about those who were cheering that day, who might be cheering, crucify him just days later? Or knowing that in a matter of days he would hang on a cross until dead, did he remember verse 17? I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. You know, have you ever seen a ticker tape parade or a victory parade? Maybe after a team wins a world championship, a Super Bowl. There are some Cowboy fans who are old enough in this room to remember that. Very few of us. But one thing all these participants in the parade have in common, they're happy. They're waving. People are cheering. They're smiling. But I don't imagine that's how Jesus was acting. I think he was burdened by what he knew was going to happen. Burdened by what the rest of Psalm 118 said. In fact, Luke says Jesus wept as he neared the city. Wept as he thought about the destruction of the city and the death that would follow their rejection of their king. The third view that we should consider is that of the human author Matthew. As he wrote many years later under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... And just like Jesus, he knew at the time this was happening, as he was writing it, he knew how the story would end. Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, as he quoted Psalm 118, would know what verse followed the one he quoted. Verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Matthew is the same author that quoted Isaiah and described the ministry of Jesus as a great light that had dawned all the way back in chapter 4, verse 16. That John described as the light of men, the true light which gives light to everyone. They knew that verse 22 of Psalm 118 said, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Matthew knew, John knew, that Jesus was indeed a man, but not just a man, not just a good man, a sinless man, not just a king, not just a prophet, but that he was the eternal light of the world and that he was God. You know, the incarnation is a fancy theological term for God becoming man, incarnation. It's derived from two words that mean in and flesh. Ross has preached a whole sermon on, on this, and you can go back and find it. And he, and he drew heavily from a creed formulated by the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451, which 1,500 years later is still the perfect orthodox definition of what the incarnation is and what the church has taught since then. But it's also much longer than the version I'm going to give you today. But here's what we mean by the incarnation of Jesus Christ according to Charles Ryrie, who wrote some of your Bibles. It means that Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal Son of God, being full deity and perfect sinless humanity, was united without mixture, 
change, division, or separation in one person forever. Fully God, fully man, without sin. So maybe you're wondering, yeah, I got it. Fully God, fully man. I've heard that before. Why is that so important? Fortunately, Dr. Ryrie also answered that question with a long list of the purposes of the incarnation. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to quickly run through six. So here we go. The first, to reveal God to us. Before Jesus, God had revealed himself in many ways. In nature, through the prophets, in scripture. But at the incarnation, God was revealed in a fuller, more complete way. Through the person of Jesus of Nazareth. John describes an exchange between Jesus and his disciples when Jesus says in 14, 6, and 7, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So believe everything about God written in the Hebrew Bible, but don't believe in Jesus and you really don't know God which is the tough but true reality for Jews today who believe in what they would describe as the God of the Hebrew Bible. So the first purpose of the incarnation is to reveal God to us. The second is to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Gabriel announced to Mary that her son would be given the throne of David. This is not fulfilled by the invisible God reigning over the affairs of men, although he does that. To have an occupant of David's throne requires a human being who is a descendant. Therefore, the Messiah had to be a human being. But to occupy that throne forever requires that that occupant never die. And only God qualifies for that. So the one who ultimately fulfills the Davidic promise has to be both God and man. Number three, to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Notice that this was done by Christ's appearing. The focus is on his coming, not on his resurrection, as you might think, as we sometimes teach. Why was the incarnation necessary to defeat Satan? I think one of the reasons is because Satan must be defeated in the area that he is strongest, where he dominates this world. So Christ was sent into this world to destroy Satan's works. Number four. To provide an example for our lives. The earthly life of our Lord is held up as a pattern for our living today. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.21, we talked about this a few weeks ago. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. Without the incarnation, we would not have that example. As a man, he experienced all the temptations of life and gives us an experienced example. As God, he offers us the power to follow that example. 
Number five, provide an effective sacrifice for sin. Without the incarnation, we wouldn't have a Savior. Sin requires death for its payment, and God does not die. So the Savior must be human in order to be able to die. But the death of an ordinary man would not pay for sin eternally for all man. So the Savior must also be God. We must have a God-man Savior, and we do in Jesus. Look back at Psalm 118 and what comes at the end of verse 27. Right after, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you'll see it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. As they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Little did they know that the king who they were looking to save them was going to be the sacrifice that they needed to be reconciled to God. And finally, number six, to be a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our high priest can feel our weakness because he was tested as we are. And yet God is never tested, so it was necessary that God become man so that he could be tested to be a sympathetic high priest. You know, the church has had bitter fights over the doctrine of the Incarnation. People died and were martyred for it. And the related heresies, which there are many I'm not going to go through, but they continue to come back time and time again, even today. But here's the reason I think it keeps coming back, even inside the church. If Jesus was just a man then it's possible to live a perfect life as a man. Which is kind of like the scene at the end of the great cinema classic, Dumb and Dumber. When Lloyd is trying to figure out if he's going to get the girl, maybe you can picture this scene, and he says, he's the dumb guy, uh, what do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? I read that right. That's really what he said. A guy like you and a girl like me ending up together. And the girl looks at him and she says, not good. And so Lloyd says, you mean not good like one out of a hundred? And she says, I'd say more like one out of a million. So he looks at her and then a big smile comes across his face and he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. In the case of Jesus being just a man and living the perfect life, the odds would be one in 107 billion, which is the estimate for how many men and women have lived on this earth at one time. 
107 billion. So you're telling me there's a chance. There's no chance. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum from Dumb and Dumber, and we'll see what John Piper says about it. He puts it this way. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's really the central theme of Psalm 118. If you were scanned through it, you'd see trust in God, not man, over and over and over again. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than trust in princes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Trust in God, not man. If the man on the colt riding into Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago is just a man, just a good example then there is no salvation for us and faith in that man will lead to death, discouragement, frustration, despair, and hopelessness. Even if it looks good for a little while, even if the man you trust in seems to be getting the job done, it can all change with the snap of a bone or a stumble into sin. But if Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man, and He is, then He is our sympathetic high priest. He is our effective sacrifice. He is our example. He is the perfect revelation of God. He is the one who defeated Satan and who will reign on the throne of David forever. And faith is... In Jesus, the God-man brings peace with God. It brings reconciliation and healing, and it brings joy and power. And it's all by God's grace. It is undeserved. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Undeserved sin, undeserved death, and undeserved righteousness. Let's pray. Father, You are the one true God. 
You have existed for all eternity as one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And because of your love for us, you sent your Son to become a man so that he could save us. He came to this earth born of a virgin and he lived a perfect sinless life. And he took our sin, the sin of the world, on himself and paid the price, which is death, for that sin. And by your power, he was raised three days later. And it's through faith in him that we can be reconciled with you. So, Father, we thank you for the obedience of your son the God-man Jesus. We thank you for the way he has revealed you to us. And Father, as Psalm 118 says over and over again, your steadfast love endures forever. Your hesed endures forever and ever. It's Father, if that's the truth that we rest in, that it is your grace not anything deserving in us and through faith in your son that we can be reconciled to you and because we have peace with you we can have peace with one another so father i pray for my brothers and sisters i pray for myself here that we would live in the reality of that peace and that we would be ambassadors for you reconciling the world to you I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.